Hey, everyone. This is the uh, Nips and Sips podcast uh, featuring uh, me, uh, Dr. Jeremy Boyd, and my partner in crime, Dr. Brandon Cruz. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about ACL rehab, um, what the essentials are in those earlier phases, uh, what we do with our own ACL uh, rehab and reconstructions, uh, and just kind of going over the essentials. Uh, but before I get uh, too much into that, uh, let me pass it off to uh, Brandon. How's it going today? Hey, Jer, how's it going? Everything's going well. Like Jer said, we're going to kind of really touch upon um, the beginning side. We're, we're probably going to make this a, a two-parter because uh, if not, I think just this podcast would be way too long. So we're going to really focus on maybe more the manual therapy side and then uh, on a follow-up uh, podcast, uh, get into our progressions and what keys we should be looking for and things like that. Uh, but Jerry, what, uh, what drink you got today? I know you had me pick the color green or uh, you give me the option between orange and green. So I picked green. Yes, sir. Yeah. You, you picked, uh, picked swoosh from uh bone saw, which is, um, probably my favorite brewery of all the 80, 90 breweries I've ever been to. It's in my hometown or business town of Glassboro. Um, this is by far one of my favorite, um, IPAs, uh, probably second to their double IPA. Uh, it's called Swoosh. It's kind of a blend between our West Coast and our East Coast uh, IPA. Uh, it's get, it's really juicy. Uh, I'm a fan of those more juicier style IPAs. Um, so I got it here. Uh, fill it up. I'm filling up in my um, Garden State uh, Brewery. Yeah, yeah. So you you you, you got them both. This glass I went to with my second CI, who. Uh, I had no idea she was a huge uh, brewery fan. Uh, Wendy um, Jenkins, she was my second uh, CI for inpatient rehab. Um, uh, awesome CI, super compassionate. Uh, would never think of it. She's like five foot, badass hunter, loves beer. I was like, wow, this she is. She's totally the CI for me. But uh, yeah, one day. Uh, uh, must have been practicing. I think I already started trifecta. We uh we met up, went to a brewery, which was pretty awesome. Got the you know meet up with her. So, yeah, cheers to you, Wendy. And what about you, Brandon? I um I have Bib and Tucker. Uh, it's a small batch of bourbon whiskey. Uh, I'm actually gonna have to buy another bottle because uh this was a gift and I like it a lot. Uh, this guy right here. Uh, this was a gift actually from uh, my dear friend and office manager Ashley. Um, Jeremy, you had said you have a Bib and Tucker beer. I don't know if they're related in any way, but uh, well, I'll be adding Bib and Tucker to oh. my beer. Oh, okay, okay, I got you. So, do you know what Bib and Tucker stands for? Uh, no, I, mean, I had no idea. Little, I thought it was little, two dudes. A little, little trivia here. Uh, it's on it's on the label, so I'm not that smart. Uh, but during the label. America's rough and Please. tumble early days, the term "bib and tucker" was used to describe your finest attire. So oh, clearly, fine. we're in a finest attire right now. You for know the, what? Uh, this podcast. I'm in, my, I'm in my finest attire right now. Exactly. I, I have this sips, baby. This hat here from Grand Cypress, which is you and I, went, which is a golf course in Orlando. For all you golf uh, fans out there, um, Jeremy and I went out there, played played around uh, this year, this past year's Aomp in 2019, which was Atlanta. So that was, that was a fun time. Um, I think I think I bought the hat because I didn't have one. I forgot my hat on the plane, not on the plane, but I forgot to pack it. Anyway, uh, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's dive there. in. 
What's up? I'm thinking I bought a belt there because yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, we were we were, not, we're well, not quite prepared. Well, part of it was just trimming down on the, the travel cost. There you um, go. Anyway, so let's jump into this, Jer. I'll let you take the kind of lead here a little bit. Um, just kind of. Uh, Touch upon your thoughts with ACL. I know you're a little bit more passionate about this than I am. You, you like this topic a little bit more. Um, so I guess why or what got you so intrigued and interested about it? Uh, and then we'll kind of go into some of the stats, um, surprising stats about ACL, and then what we, uh, what we do to avoid those stats. Yeah, uh, so I got super lucky now. Just talked about my second of Phil for my final of Phil. Um, I got to go to elite sports physical therapy up in Tin Falls, and I had the awesome pleasure of working under Sharon Wetmurth, who owned the practice. Uh, pretty much a dream of a sports physical therapy practice. She started from the you know the ground, small little office, and now it's a fourteen thousand square foot facility. Um, but she she was known far and wide for her ACL rehab. Pretty much that's mostly what she saw. And obviously she got like UCLs, spondylolisthesis, a uh, bunch of other things, but she was, her whole population, if she wanted to be, could have been ACL. She pretty much had monopoly simply because of how well she did it and how well her outcomes were. Um, so, you know, being great, I meant 90% of my case at times were ACL. So, it was cool. Um, didn't matter what phases we had people starting off day one and we're getting people all the way six, eight months out. So uh fell in love with it. You know, that's probably where I fell in love with the sports side of things. Uh, so, and she just had it down to a science. Um, you know, I can't remember anyone who did poorly on it. Um, you know, manual therapy, she had it where a physical therapist um, were doing any of the manual therapy, telemobes, extension, flexion, any of your basic exercise to maintain all those sort of things. Um, they drew up the plan. And then she had like masters of strength and conditioning, taking them and doing the full gamut of everything. Core, uh, return to sport exercises. A PT's guy in there as well. Um, yeah. But she was on. She was just like, you know, they know more about exercise than I can ever know. So... I, I kind of hand it off to them and I'm just there, you know, it's a couple suggestions if it's something that they, the athlete needs specifically. So she would like modify some things or if they had a more interesting surgery or we had like a, I think during my time there, we had like a 11 or 10 year old. So it was a pediatric case. So we had to take that girl a little bit differently than, you know, most of our ACL. So, you know, it was awesome, awesome experience. Any of our New Jersey or hell, anyone who's listening in and wants to get more involved with ACLs, I, I really believe Sharon's probably one of the best PTs, um, you know, in the country in regards to that. So, you know, definitely a cool experience. So from there, I've always kind of enjoyed it. Uh, I've modified things, obviously, with, um, you know, my own touch, um, you know, maybe different changing manual therapy and techniques and those sort of things. But um, yeah, we still see a lot of ACLs at my clinic. Um, and the big thing is, I think, uh, and it's funny when I talk to schools, um, I guess the DCE, the director of clinical education, yeah. and they always mention like simple versus complex cases. And they always throw in like surgeries 
always under the line of simple cases. Uh, for the ACL, I do not think that's the case at all. Um, even in a situation where I was as a student, where I was 80% of what we saw, everybody was a little bit different and we had to treat them a little bit different. And if you don't do things right, especially early on, you can really, you know, say, I hate to say it, fuck someone's life up for the rest of their life. Um, yeah. And, you know, even, um, you know, James Andrews, who's you know, arguably the greatest surgeon of, you know, of our lifetime. Yeah. Well, most yeah. right now, at least, especially with his, um, him seeing so many professional athletes. Yeah, you know, that where everyone always references Adrian Pearson. Well, Adrian Pearson got back in six months. Um, and Drew Brees' shoulder and all those sort of things. That was, that was James Andrews. Um, even he says, he's like, I don't really do so much. It's really the, the rehab side. He's like, you, they see them every day. They work them out. They progress them. He's like, I'm just in there. I do the surgery and I check up on them every once in a while. Um, so I fully believe that, you know, the ACL should be done and, you know, carried through, um, by people who are extremely confident and experienced, but you obviously have to be exposed to it to get experience. So, um, it isn't a simple condition. Um, it's not just something you can have them do same exercises for a prolonged period of time. They need progression and they need to be kept a good eye on, um, cause a lot can go wrong pretty quick. So yeah, that's kind of my upbringing in ACLs. Um, I, I pretty much do a pretty aggressive um, sort of thing uh, to start off. Um, you know, it's not the most pleasant thing if you've ever worked with the ACL. Uh, they probably don't want to move their legs so much, but uh, understand the things that we're going to be talking about and how important timelines are and how important those early stages are. Uh, you have to push your client and you have to know it to do it in the best way because a lot of people will quit. I know a friend of mine who's a funny thing is a PT now, um, tore his ACL five times. So, um, same one, huh? No, same I think it's like two and one, three and the other. I can't I lost track five, eight. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be easily a quarter million dollars there in expenses. Uh, probably more. At least. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, the hours, the pain, the medication. That's at least five years of yeah. time rehabbing yeah. and things like that. And, and as a, he said, the first couple, he kind of blew off. Uh, and where does that come down on? Who does it come down on? Is it, you know, a young guy who's, you know, maybe not taking it seriously? Or is it, you know, the rehab staff that's not either doing enough or not? emphasizing the importance of the surgery itself uh, or the whole process, not just the surgery. So, um, yeah, I went on a little bit of a rant there. So, uh, Brandon, what about you? How about so good. Uh, I'll save my, uh, my story for our next one because my course with ACLs, I was very big into it. Um, I mean, I was like obsessed with ACLs. Uh, part of it was I partially tore mine. I had a grade two. And I had the option of doing surgery and not, um, but I'll save that story for the next one we do. But I, oh, I did a capstone on it, um, you know, looking at mechanisms, who's more likely to have it, you know, all the stuff that we hope is more basic, but maybe it's not. So I'll touch upon that in our next one. But uh, let, let, let me jump into some surprising stats. Uh, I, I think I know when I saw these and, and probably when you saw them, you were a little 
little shocked and surprised. I know I was, as this is a surgery that is uh, perfected, right? Um, you know, we have great outcomes. Like you said, Adrian Peterson returned in eight months. He had a quad uh, quad contraction or was able to do a straight leg raise like three hours after his surgery or something. Uh, I think people need to understand that he's a freak of nature and these professional athletes are just that. They're professional. They're not us. Um, you had touched upon James Andrews and he usually sends to Kevin Welk at least the um, – I know for a fact – What's him call it? Uh, Drew Brees, his his uh, shoulder surgery. He he went under Kevin Welk, and there's a write up in JOSPT on it, and you could see what they did. I mean, he was rehabbing three times a day. These athletes rehab three times a day. Um, I think that goes with what you were saying about educating your patients properly, uh, because they either return too fast, and if they return mm-hmm. too fast, they're not ready. Uh, and if they're not ready, it's because he probably didn't do the rehab. Just because they've gone timeline wise they're six seven eight months a year out doesn't mean you know just because they've they've reached that criteria doesn't mean they've reached all the other check boxes that we'll go over mm-hmm. um starting yeah. with uh extension and range of motion but uh, i'm just going to share the screen right here real quick uh actually i can't because you didn't disable it can you disable it real quick or no uh multiple can okay Am I sharing my screen right now uh no i'm sharing my screen just so everyone can see okay this slide okay or at least the people who watch this um the people who can't who have to listen uh this is what kind of some of the research says 55 to 70 percent of people who have acl uh, tears and surgeries return to a pre-injury level i mean we're talking I'll, i'll kind of split the difference in the middle 60 to 65%. So 40 to 45% of people aren't able to return to the pre-level of injury. That's astounding for such a mainstream uh, injury and mainstream surgery that has been kind of the gold standard and is perfected or or we think it's perfected. I mean, that to me is an alarming number. Uh, The retail rates are up to 25%. Uh, Retail rates in seven months after surgery are 15 percent and then i have you know increased risk for ad- with adolescents and elder grafts we won't really get into that that's a wholly totally different topic yeah. but i don't know jerry if you could shed some light what you thought about this this guy right here 50 or 70 percent return to pre-injury when you when you came across it and started your career yeah i remember i remember i think i i did my first in service um i think i have that somewhere on my on my laptop or a flash drive. Uh, my first in-service, uh, we all do in-services as students or usually I have all my students do it because I had to do it. And I think it's enjoyable. Um, was on ACL reconstructions. I remember coming across those stats and I'm like, wow, that's, that's terrible. Like the thing, all right, on the low end um, that, you know, only half of these individuals are actually getting back to what they want to do. Um, and why in, the why is that the case? I think uh, another recent study, I'll try and pull that up. But it just came to me, but we'll, we'll probably talk more about that on our second podcast is I think 60% of individuals after they return to sport, when they go through our standard as best as what we have right now, return to sport, you know, testing, you know, the single leg hop test, your quad um, strength return, psychological readiness to return to sport. Um, you know, quad to hamstring ratio, only, you know, 60% of those individuals actually, 
or 60% of those individuals actually failed those tests. Um, I'm not 100% sure on the numbers, but um, yeah, it was pretty alarming. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure from hearing conversations with orthopedic surgeons and things that the ACL is the most heavily researched uh, orthopedic surgery of of all the types of surgeries, including knee replacements, any back surgeries, and all those sort of things. And yet we're we're you know at a C to D average essentially um, yeah. with all this. Really? So it's it's pretty alarming. I can't imagine the psychological trauma of you know going through that surgery, going through that rehab once, but let alone twice. Um, if it was to re-tear and those, those stats are pretty alarming. I think there's, uh, I forget the exact percentage of the contra, the are more likely to tear your contralateral ACL post, um, post. Your first ACL, Correct. which is you know, scary. Um, and what are we doing wrong? Um, I think it's, you know, that's one thing that I was amazed with being at Sharon's place was, you know, a lot of those kids weren't so much a, a two-timer there was a couple there are a couple some people just have genetic factors um some females especially um you know where they kind of are almost predisposed to it but a lot of them weren't and it was because of our rigor of what we were doing day in day out um and you know saying no to some of our athletes when they thought they were ready um so I think it, it comes down on us as, you know, rehab professionals. I know I've had to, um, I've had to say no to probably the last two or three athletes when they thought they were ready and I said they weren't. So they eventually got back and they've all been good, knock on wood since, but, um, yeah, what are we, you know, I think the conversation that we should talk about is what are we doing wrong or what are we not looking hard enough at or, to make sure our athletes go back safe and sound. Yeah, and, and you know, part of it may go down to the people who don't repair. Well, why is it? Is it because they, they fall on that 30 to, you know, uh, 40, 50% that don't return to pre-level injuries, so they just kind of hang up their cleats. Uh, the ones that have the contralateral injuries because they're, they subconsciously know and their body knows that that, impaired leg or involved leg isn't as strong. So now that other leg is, is, um, bearing the brunt. But, uh, I think when it starts with us, uh, it's at the pre, if we get the opportunity pre-surgery pre-op level. Uh, mm-hmm. and this is another thing where we as PTs need to advocate and educate surgeons because I've had surgeons, um, can, is that popping through? I'm sorry. Uh, you're a text man. You're a popular man. You're like a mayor here. You know? I have a feeling that that's going to hold on. Sorry about that. Uh, no, um, it's okay. So, yeah. is yeah, educating our patients or educating our surgeons to um, let us see these patients sooner. And mm-hmm. because they're going to lead to better outcomes, I've had, I'm sure you've had like surgeons that have patients not come to PT for like a month out of surgery. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? I've had six weeks. Six weeks. I had two, uh, two starting last year, 2019. Yeah. We did not get them to like five or six weeks. 
and I and I was just like, yeah, this is when I was you know starting trifecta and all these sort of things. I'm like, is this like a South Jersey thing? Like, and I was like, all right, you know, like let's you know, I haven't been experienced with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it allows things to calm down, and they're you know they're looking, they're going to be fine. And nope, it, both of them, you know, thank God we work, we put a lot of work in, but it seemed more torturous to them. Oh, of course. And, and it was sad. It was sad to see. Um, um, we'll go into, I'll touch, I just want to touch upon pre, pre-op, and then I want you to talk about yep. those four six-week markers being that we, we've both had, and I'm sure we're not the only ones who've had uh, delayed because you have some good articles that talk about that. But uh, on the pre-op side, um, you know, pre-op, there, there's a study by Morrow in 2008, pre-op extension deficit predicts post-op extension deficits at six months mm-hmm. so you know we want to get these patients in hopefully earlier uh yep. is that the article beautiful yep that's it so, so um so yeah i just want to take a brief look at this you know where we're seeing um things is is right here uh loss of extension significantly associated with preoperative extension and time from injury to surgery. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, pretty much what, you know, what we're talking about here. So this is the loss of extension following anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction, analysis of incidence and etiology using IK, IKDC criteria by Morrow in 2008 for anyone who's interested. Um, but um, yeah, those, those, I, everybody I've, had the opportunity to have a prehab with um, that just from all kinds of things, whether it's just getting range of motion, which is key. Cause I'd say most individuals, you tear your ACL, um, especially, you know, full tear, especially with all the swelling uh, immediately, they don't have full range of motion. Mm-hmm. I Sharon always talking about, it, she's like, I can probably tell an ACL tear, uh, like when they walk in without with just their walk she called it the acl walk it's knee flexion um their heels raised they're on their tippy toes she's like i guarantee that's acl you know um she she called it the acl walked and if we're going into these surgeries and i think when i was a student maybe my first year uh it was like oh you tore your acl let's operate you you tore on a Wednesday, we're operating you on a Friday sort of thing. And now you're starting to see this, Hey, we got to at least hold off a little bit, but are we getting them doing rehab? Is it, we're just, you know, holding off because there's no time or no spots in surgery, or are we regaining all that motion back? Um, we had one case um, where we got someone, she was, she tore ACL, um, she did rehab this is, she came to the, the college where I'm at. Uh, she got a posterior, uh, capsule release because she never got full extension. Um, pre, and I was talking to the PT that was working with her, uh, never got full extension, uh, prehab. Uh, mm-hmm. they only had her for a little bit. He said, he's like, yeah, she wasn't like fully into it. Got the surgery. It got compounded by the surgery. A lot of pain, you know, want to force your things um didn't do well uh ended up having in that posterior kind of capsule release 
And it was still a struggle to, you know, get all that range of motion. And could that all been prevented if it was, you know, done pre-op? So yeah, if it's something you have the opportunity to, to discuss with surgeons or anything like that, how important that prehab process is, one, from a range of motion standpoint, but two, I like to prep uh, my, my ACLs mentally. No surgeon to this date that I know of will describe how much of a grueling road this is. Again, everyone's got the Adrian Peterson mentality. Um, people I know don't even know football will talk about something about Adrian Peterson. Um, they'll be like, oh, I heard this Adrian Peterson. I'm like, do you guys, oh, like, what football team are you like? I'm like, oh, I don't like football. I just heard about Adrian Peterson. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, so, you know, just mentally preparing them. So I'll talk to them about what, you know, graphs they need or what graphs they can choose from. Obviously go with what the surgeon is, but talk to them about what their surgeon protocol is and just kind of mentally get them ready for the long road ahead. And, you know, tapering expectations, I think is, is always a good thing for all of our, all our clients versus coming out thinking, Hey, I'm going to be fine. They fixed what they needed to do. And you come out and you feel like a truck ran you over and backed up on you a couple of times. So that's why I like the prehab process. But. I agree that. And even um, explaining it to patients, you know, the, those first couple of weeks, just kind of recircling, circling back because surgery, well, let's be honest, it is, it's a business and the surgeon's not going to be like, this is going to be the, the, the hardest rehab you've had for the next six months. Um, I've had, knee scopes, uh, meniscal tears where the, pa the doctors have told the patient, oh, you'll be back in two to four weeks. No problem. Don't need rehab or anything. Doesn't make any sense. PT, uh, when it comes to ACL surgeries, oh, you'll be, you'll be running in three months. Okay. You'll just begin to start to run at three months, not being mm -hmm. able to go sprint and play sports Cut. in three months. They, they, they kind of downplay it and maybe that's because they're so busy. And if they do educate the patient properly, a lot of times – the patient just has so many other things that they're trying to process that they can't remember it. Or if it's out of surgery, that's, I love when surgeons try and tell you and educate you right after the surgery. And I don't know if anyone's had surgery before you don't know what's going on. It's like being like blacked out drunk. Um, the patient, you're like you're, you're woozy. You're trying to come to, and the pa the doctor's just speaking a mile a minute and you're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like you don't remember. Um, so, you know, obviously they're limited on what they can do, but they need to rely on us a little bit more. And I'm not saying every surgeon's like that, but, no. um, so we've had our fair share more than our fair share, uh, of surgeons who don't either use us properly as, as therapists or, um, kind of don't educate their, their patient properly. Uh, and kind of last thing, I know we're talking about extension here, but a couple other studies that talk about preoperative strength, um, deficits predict post-op strength deficits at two at the two year mark. Uh, and then we, you know, we want to normalize a joint and Jerry, I know you want to talk about this later. Uh, preoperative synovitis correlates to post-op arthrofibrosis uh, and or um, arthritic changes uh, and things like that. So, you know, transitioning now, let's go into those phases and let's go to phase one, which would be kind of restoring motion um, when's the optimal time, Jeremy, that we should restore motion? How can we restore motion better? What does restoring motion actually do? Uh, let's kind of touch upon some of that stuff. 
Yeah, um, and just uh, piggyback off what you said, some of that, that, that quad uh, or that strength sort of thing, I think that is probably the most important thing, um, you know, prehab is you can really work that quad and no matter how good you are, once that surgery happens, that, that sucker turns mush on most people. Yeah. But I feel like the individuals, I kind of get it in their head. I'm like, I have one kid, I, I even think I was going to be able, we didn't see him prehab. I was just like, listen, he was just like scouting us out. This is when we were in the, like the dungeon trifecta. I was just like, listen, I don't know, care who you pick, but if you can get advice for me, get your knees straight and fire up your quad. And I showed him like a quad set. And while I was talking with his mom, he was just like firing up his quad, like just he was like getting used to it. And then he did decide to come to us. And day one, you can just see him just doing it. And literally anytime I left them to do an exercise or show somebody something, that's all he was doing. And his outcomes were great. But yeah, that phase one, uh, super pivotal, uh, that getting that range of motion. Um, it's a big if of when uh, to start. Obviously, these individuals are in a lot of pain. Um, most of them are on a nerve block. Um, so those first two, three days, they, they can't even feel their leg, um, which is, I always think, I'm like, maybe that's the best time if to, you can come to their house for a little bit, do some things. I know some surgeons use a CPM. Um, you know, not, not too many do. Uh, so, you know, I always, I always consider it. I'm like, all right, they're on their block. They don't feel anything. They're also probably on some sort of, you know, opioid or anything like that. That's probably our golden hour. Um, but yeah, I usually like to, at least within the first five days, try and get them in. Um, you know, I did see one ACL, uh, as a student the day of, uh, I don't know if you ever got that brand. No, never got that. Well, um, as an intern in Florida, I lied, but not as a practicing clinician. No. Right, same, yeah, same here. And uh, the surgeon insisted, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's pretty awesome that you know he believed in therapy. Why it started day one? However, um, one for portholes, uh, which obviously it was the day of, hasn't didn't fully seal. I think she was doing like quad sets or something like that." And then, you know, that like classic, you know, movie where it's like blush, shooting out, wasn't shooting out, but she was leaking everywhere. So that pretty much shut down the session. Um, but yeah, you know, getting in and starting within that first week, I think is absolutely critical. And I'll always put more emphasis on extension uh, over flexion every single time. Uh, Unless I got all three, you know, someone says the surgeon was like, Hey, you know, maybe they have some you know, OCD lesions or anything like that. I haven't had that, um, you know, where extension wouldn't be beneficial. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll tell the clients. And I think the big thing is most clients, because they can see progress with bending, um, it's an easy sort of thing, and, you know, especially if you're the PT and you say, how many, oh, you're at 120 today. They fixate on that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they'll emphasize that more. Um, and it's really up to us to emphasize the importance of getting extension, not just to neutral, but to whatever the, the opposite side is. And most of us, especially our female athletes, um, they hyperextend. Mm -hmm. So leaving at neutral is not enough. So, um, yeah, that's, that's something I do. Obviously I'll start off 
hammer and home extension. And then we know based off of like our quad inhibition studies is we cannot fully activate the quad until we get full extension. So I spent a good deal of time. And for those individuals, probably 20, 30 minutes, if I can, doing some sort of manual therapy, uh, patellar mobilizations, because you do need the patella to go in the superior direction with, with uh, quadriceps contraction. Um, scar tissue, you know, just kind of a big debate of whether you're breaking that up or not. Um, and then, you know, getting, you know, extension. Obviously, maybe those first couple of days, you're not going full ham and pushing it all the way to hyperextension because they may be a little bit too un uncomfortable. And we know when we go way too aggressive too soon, you may cause some arthrofibrosis, but you at least got to push it because we know how the human body and brain thinks. They're typically not going to push themselves to that, mm -hmm. you know, to those end ranges. It's just especially that closed pack position of, of knee extension, you know, people aren't going to push themselves. So it's our job to do it, just grade it. Um, so I'll start maybe with some tibial femoral, just the tibia AP mobilizations early on, and then get a little bit more aggressive with a femur and a tibia at the same time sort of thing. But that's kind of my first process. What about you, Brandon? Yeah, I think in phase one, we have to, um, you know, obviously protect that graft uh, and focus on mobility. I think one of the reasons or another reason to add on to what you were saying, why patients focus on flexion more is it's also uh, less painful. Um, that, hence that gait with the knee flexion and things like that. Um, talking about patella mobility, uh, you know, manual therapy is going to help decrease ma uh, pain. Um, mm -hmm decreasing pain, increasing range of motion is going to help better quad activation, as you were talking about. And we have some studies here by Noel in 2000, Delhi in 2000. Um, obviously, we want to try and encourage weight bearing um, as tolerated as fast as possible um, with that. Uh, Jared, do you have those those articles queued up? I'll talk about real quick just some the stats here, and then you could maybe just show the articles. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was going to uh, show some some of the manual therapy um that we do um, yeah initial on but let me get this one up oh you got it up first all right You're so first. well if you could show the articles or even put it in the link uh this is just from a powerpoint i had it queued up that's all uh so you know the 25 percent of patients had less than five percent uh lost at four weeks and that's that first article that you're talking about by morrow uh 12 percent of patients have less than five uh degrees uh lost at two-year follow-up and a 10 to 14% have greater than three degree deficit at the seven year post-op. Uh, and then we have, this is a key one. I'll, I'll let you talk about this, mm -hmm. Jer. Um, extension loss at four weeks post-op predicts extension loss at 12 weeks post-op. Uh, mm -hmm. And you were talking about not getting the ACL patient until four or six weeks later. Well, that, that kind of missed, we miss out on this window here. Yep. Um, so, yep, I have it already. Screen. Is this it? Is this it? Yep. So, yep. No. Um, this is the article, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so basically, what they saw in this study was, you know, what we get at four weeks kind of was a predictor of what happens at twelve weeks. Uh, to sum it up, um, you know. 
fit. If you weren't within, I believe, five degrees of, you didn't have to get all the way to knee, full knee extension within four weeks. Mm-hmm. But if you did not get within five degrees of it at four weeks, the likelihood of you getting it at 12 weeks was significantly um, significantly reduced. So that's pretty much what they found with this. This is knee extension range of motion at four weeks is related to knee extension loss at 12 weeks after anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction by Null, uh, I believe in 2012, right? It's 2012? I thought it was 14. It could be 12. 2014, sorry. No, 2015. 2015, sorry. Um, so... Uh, that yeah, that's pretty much what they what I got out of that that article was you know you have that four week one unless they're in a knee immobilizer into full extension and let's be honest those hinge braces that they all come out with uh, mm-hmm. and they're set to zero or hyper extension not a soul is ever in full extension they find a way to have their knee bent in there the the, the braces are not you know the best design but that's what we have right now. Um, so yeah, you just kind of, I try and ideally some things that I've tried to do was, you know, obviously I'm doing all the rehab outside of the brace. Um, and then before I let them go, sometimes I'll do some knee extension, either exercises or techniques, manual therapy wise, um, before I let them go. And then I stick them back into the brace. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're missing out on this four week uh, window, you know, it's going to kind of mess them up. And then at 12 weeks, what are people going to want to do? 12 week is the running Run, phase. Typically the running phase. Yep. Have you ever tried? I, I want everyone to go out there. Don't, don't injure yourself or anything, but try running with one normal knee and try running another one with a slightly bent knee and see how that feels on you. You're not going to feel great. Uh, your hip and your back. Too. Hip, back, knee. You're now ruining the whole kinematic chain and you're just going to be loading up that knee over and over with hundreds, if not, you know, we think, oh, yeah, we do three sets of 10 or five sets of 10 reps. Running is hundreds, if not thousands of reps over and over. And if we're not doing it with, um, you know, the proper kinematics, it's just going to keep beating up that person. They get inflamed from that and their knee swells up and now you're, you've gone back three steps. Um, so yeah, go ahead there, Brandon. I'm, I'm going to, I was just going to say, I believe running's, uh, well, depending on the speed you're running anywhere from six to 10 times, uh, your body weight. And I think it's, uh, like 7,000 to 10,000 newtons of force that's going through that, that kinematic chain that needs to be absorbed. Uh, Jerry, you talked about a, a good point. Um, that brace, um, and it being locked at zero. I guess, do you want to touch upon or do you have handy the, the couple of studies that talk about locking people into five degrees of extension and what these people look at, uh, look like? Um, if not, I have, I have the, the study or a slide oh, yeah. for people. But yeah, I know you slide, go, go fire up the... Because you uh, said, um, is that something you try and, you try and do is, is bring them to, to beyond extension or beyond neutral? Uh, yeah, always. I mean, within the brace and everything like that. Yeah, you know, uh, instead of locking them at zero, can we lock them at negative five? Ideally, yeah. Um, I try to get it. I mean, some of the braces I've noticed just go to zero. Okay. I've seen a couple where they, I don't know if it's Don Joy, I can't remember who, will have a couple hyper 
you know, hyper extension into their, into their brace. Um, so the, yeah, I try to, you know, if it's whatever it may be, I try and get them as straight as they can, um, and then put them into the brace. And if we can lock them into hyper extension, that's, that's ideal. Um, I don't, they have dinosaur splints and stuff like that. You know, that's obviously not a brace. It's something that the client can use to get hyperextension. But I would think, hey, you know, if we had some sort of combination brace between like the dinosaur splint um, and our, your standard, you know, post-op ACL brace that can get more hyperextension, you know, we'd, I think a, our outcomes would actually get a lot better. Yeah, yeah go ahead, Brian. So yeah, just the study just talk about talks about locking people out at negative five, and uh, the people that were locked out at negative five had nine uh, percent of them had extension loss of greater than two degrees at that twelve week mark, versus fifty four percent had extension loss of greater than two degrees at the twelve week mark. I mean, I, I think that's a that's a huge thing. Dude. But I will say uh, with this maybe not every patient needs this. So you can't just take this article and be like, lock them at five, because like you said, if you're too aggressive, it's going to lead to some fibrosis and, you know, um, irritation of, uh, of that joint. So we, we need to learn how to pick and choose what patients we think need it. Um, and what patients we don't, or when to use it as well. Uh, because you know, some of those, some of those people who have their ACL tears, um, or ACL surgery, uh, you know, and they're not really athletes. They either a just like fell on the steps or something, or B, uh, maybe they tried to go play a sport one day and it just didn't work. Like they're not, they're going to have a longer and tougher road. They're, they're probably not the, the, the athletic type and know how to push themselves. And mm-hmm. I guess, um, the best way is you'll know those patients when you, when you get them. Um, so Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's always something to, um, you know, base your treatment off of who you have, what their goals are, and everything like that. Um, yeah, it's, you know, obviously someone who's got D1 or collegiate aspirations or professional aspirations, they're going to do whatever you tell them to get there. Someone who just wants to go back and, you know, occasionally run around with their kids, it's a little bit different so forcing it too much even as a it is a goal and putting them through a great deal of pain might make someone you know bail out not complete the rehab and now they're even more at risk so definitely grade it based off of who you uh who you have in your clinic um one thing i try and educate my patients on as well is is put things in perspective for letting them kind of, you know, adding what you were saying, Jer, and kind of telling them the road ahead. We're, we're lucky if we get a patient three times a week for an hour or so a week. So we're talking from like three to four hours a week. There's 169 hours in a week, right? 169. Um, I'm not sure if that math's right, but you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Four hours out of 169 or 170 hours in a week um, is not enough for us to – or not enough for the patient to just do the bare minimum. They need to be able to go home and do some things. And if you break it down, like we're like a small little percentage of this pie and we're here to give them the tools and knowledge they need to to become better. Um, Mm. You know, that that's going to benefit those patients um, in the long term, in the long run, especially in early on phases when they want to put the pillow underneath their knee while they're watching TV. And you're like, no, put the pillow or roll up towel by your ankle. 
or your, your mm-hmm. Achilles. Um, so you can get that, you know, strain, stress, creep, you know, prolonged duration, low load, um, knee extension. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, I know you want, I don't know if you had anything else to say, but I know you wanted to show some videos on some mobilizations, um, kind mm. of use. Yeah. Um, what I tell a good thing I tell my, my, you know, it's obviously mostly athletes, um, you know, is I tell them it's their full-time job is your ACL rehab becomes your full-time. I'm like, yeah, make sure you still pay attention to your studies. Um, but it is a full-time job because it needs to be a full-time job. Those six months, you know, Adrian Peterson people, it was their full-time job. They did rehab three hour, you know, two, three hours up, oh, tapped out. Oh boy. No, I'm refilling here. I'll refill on. Almost. Um, I've probably got a little, a little bit left. I might as well rip a shot then. Some yeah. nips and sips. Oh, oh, um, so I'll show kind of, um, I'll start with some patella glides. Um, I'll, I'll put up some, uh, the knee extension, you know, technique that we do once they're a little bit more, I guess, seasoned. I wouldn't go gung-ho on this. Um, but let me, let me put that up real quick. And again, anybody listening in, they can, uh, um, you know, feel free to, you know, come back, watch these videos and share screen. There we go. So sorry for the. That ACL patient or is that Justin? No, that is a ACL client. He is a pretty awesome one. Um, he he got a he's one of the first ones where they used and salvaged a piece of their ACL. I'll hmm. talk more. So Jer, can you talk about because I do this too? I don't know if everyone can see. And if you guys are listening, uh, Jeremy has a, 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 like a foam pad or a rolled up towel I use underneath the mm-hmm. patient's knee by the popliteal fossa, which I think is a great way to help, um, I guess, make the technique more comfortable for patients while you're doing extension molds. Jerry, if you want to just talk, uh, touch upon that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I ran through all my uh, – oops, we don't need to hear me talk again. Um, yeah, I ran through all my patellar mobilizations um, in about, let's give or take 20 degrees of flexion, which we know is the open pack position of the of the knee joint, which again is why a lot of people will stay to a bent knee with walking and everything like that. Um, so this is something I do. I used to probably start off my patellar mobilizations at full extension. Um, but yeah, you know, test it out. You know, first get them full extension and see how much easier is to mobilize and move that patella around in just 20 degrees of, uh, of, uh, flexion. And it's going to go a lot easier. The patients can be a lot more comfortable. Maybe as I start to, they gain more pain-free extension, I may start to remove that because they do need to fire up that quad and full extension and get that patella moving. But this is something I'll start off with. Um, yeah, just to, to kind of get things moving. And it seems like it's, again, a lot more tolerable. You don't want to, you know, you want to limit or eliminate as much pain as possible with any of your manual therapy. Sometimes you do have to push them a little bit. 
um, yeah, like that they're, to do they're, it. They're already guarding. Um, I'll, I'll say with that, Jer, I, I like the rolled up towel. Uh, well, uh, let me backtrack real quick. You touched upon uh, just mobilization in general, make it more comfortable for people. Um, they're already in pain. You know, doing a mobilization in, you know, a pain-free range or, you know, 20 degrees of flexion is still going to have carryover into their limited range, especially in someone who's lacking motion. I use a rolled-up towel because you roll up the towel, you know, your, your typical hand towels you have. And then as I go along and as I'm getting a little more of a balance and that pain's decreasing and the patient's not guarding as much and you're getting more extension, I unroll the towel a little bit. Now I'm getting a little bit more into extension, mobilize there, unroll the towel some more. So, you know, you start from a wedge that's like this big and you're going, you know, down, down, down to, you know, more extension. And then, like you said, um, obviously end rate extension, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a good uh, piece of uh, information or golden nugget for our audience. Um, who, yeah. who's, you know, maybe don't find manual therapy that effective. Well, it, is it because you're trying to crank on this patient, you know, in pure knee extension? Um, so if you if you try that that tip, it might uh, help you be a little more successful. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I used to be that person that was like, "All right, we're gonna go, we're gonna go for the full thing every day, every time they come in," and that's when people begin to dread it. They'll probably cancel on you um so if you can grade it you know chip away at just like your exercise you grade everything you advance it you know same with your manual therapies just slowly chip away at it and then when they're at 90 percent, you know feel free to go gunko which is would be this chair i'm looking at the the videos here i'm gonna guess this was uh, in the middle of covid here because you got black gloves on uh, is that right? Is, were you seeing this, this patient during, uh, during Corona here? or This is before it really broke out. Okay. Um, like, so he started in early post-op, early March. So this is probably, you know, within a, a week or two of his, of his, probably two weeks because his, his stereo strips are off. All right. Um, and then after that, I've been starting to use like masks and stuff like that. So, um yeah if i'm if I, I just noticed the gloves i was like yeah that that's got to be recent <laughs> yeah um well sometimes if i know like you see here there's a scar and stuff if i'm going to be digging into someone's scar um yeah. i'll usually put on the gloves so okay i think this was probably week two of his week week i wouldn't want to say it was probably week two right. um of his surgery um but you know, black gloves make me look a lot slicker than I I really am too. So you know, you, you go into a restaurant, you see the chef with the black gloves, you're like, oh shit, he's he's for real, and it could be awful food for all you know. But uh, those are uh, that's those. Yeah, now actually my gloves are blue. So actually, since COVID, uh, we ran out of black gloves. But um, um, these are some quick exercises. I'm going to show. This is a way to. You know, there's big debate about ice and everything like right now. Obviously, you want to do everything in moderation. Too much ice, you're shutting off the, um, you know, the, the proper healing process that inflammation does give. Uh, a lot of people post-ACL are like icing an hour long uh, pretty much all throughout the day, and that might be too much. And then you get people who don't do it at all, and their knee swells up, and that we know anything more than three centimeters – of um, 
swelling within the knee joint can cause uh, quad inhibition. Uh, so you want to be somewhere in between where you're allowing the healing process, you're not getting hypoxic. Um, so this is just not even gonna play the videos. His knees straight. This is some. This is actually pre pre-op. So this is sometime in February, um, and his knees straight. We're gonna get that you know that creep effect with our stretching, a prolonged low load stretch. He's got a compression ice device. I'm teaching this all to him before he's getting into his surgery. So, I mean, he was probably 140 degrees or 100, he was probably 120, 130 degrees within like four or five weeks. Mm. Um, full, you know, extension to zero and those sort of things. Why? Because he got such a head start on things. I taught him patellar mobilizations, which, um, yeah, and you hear me talking to him. What I can be honest with is how difficult it is for a patient to self-mobilize their patella. It's you can teach them, and then all of a sudden you you watch them do it like a week later, and they're just moving the skin around. Um, so that again, that further emphasizes you know we can teach self-mobilizations. I love to do that, um, but you know we got we got be honest with ourselves and what the patient's really going to be able to do. Are they really going to push themselves? Are they going to do it with the right technique? And, you know, that's where manual therapy comes in, you know, heel slides, quad sets, um, firing up that quad before. And then, you know, if you have quad, you know, you know, you know, straight leg raises. So, and then all that and, Oh, Um, all that, and I was able to coach him with things, you know, kind of get fired up into his brain before, you know, obviously he went in for surgery and, you know, everything had its effect. So that's something I like to do. And I wish I can do that with every ACL client I've ever had. Yeah. The, the, uh, the ones that are motivated, definitely more, more fun. Um, yeah, I saw you doing heel slides. I don't know if you have the article handy. If not, we'll, we'll add it in uh, part two of this, um, this topic. The one that talks about heel slides being as effective, if not more than a CPM machine, CPM, CPM machine. Uh, and that's just a way to help save our uh, patients money. Um, mm -hmm. Not have to rip through the medical, um, I guess, insurance and things like that. And it's something that the patient can start day one and not need to be fitted and have someone come to their house and all this other shit. Um, just have them do heel slides. Um, nice, easy, easy thing. And like Jeremy said, attack the quads, um, you know, prone TKEs work as well. Uh, mm, we have this patient on their stomach, um, you know, using having them against standing against the wall and pushing to a ball, um, you know, whatever works, but uh, we do know that, um, you know, inadequate quad strength will result in an altered gait pattern. Uh, and that's going to lead to altered running patterns and really just prevent us from being able to transition to, uh, to phase two, which is where we really want to focus on strength and endurance and symmetry and things like that. Uh, so we'll save that for the next uh, podcast, which will probably be a little longer because there's a lot more to cover, but uh, I don't know, Jared, do you have anything else? I think that's pretty much it, right? No, that's, I think we did a, Good job of hitting that those first phases, and um, yeah, hopefully it gives some insight and uh, of what to do. And 
you know, if you have any questions, you have a tricky ACL or you are an ACL client, want to talk about some things, you know, feel free to reach out to us. Um, we'll obviously love to nerd out about this sort of stuff. Uh, we're at um, Nips and Sips uh, on Facebook and Instagram. I'm at The Decent Doctor and at uh, Trifecta Therapeutics uh, business-wise. Brandon's at Think Like a Fellow and uh, at Pursue PT Now. Uh, so yeah, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, hopefully gain some nuggets of knowledge here. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening in, everyone. All right, guys. Cheers. Cheers.